0: Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in obedience to him. You will eat the fruit of your labor. Blessings and prosperity will be yours. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine in your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Yes, this will be the blessing for the man who fears the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you live to see your children's children. Peace be on Israel. Uh, well, thanks very much. It's lovely to be with you uh, here again today, uh, this final of three weeks, uh, looking at the Psalms. Now, can I ask you as we begin to take out this little handout from inside your uh, leaflets? It's got both the Bible passage on one side and an outline of what I'm going to speak about on the reverse. A couple of other passages there that you'll find helpful. Um, It's been really lovely being with you here at Trinity Church Brighton these last three weeks, um, and particularly to see uh, the church continuing to grow and to reach out, even though I know you sent off a number of your dear brothers and sisters uh, with the Woodcroft plant. Um, I thought I'd just let you know for your encouragement that at the opposite end of the city, uh, so obviously we're down the south here, uh, the start of 2018 uh, Trinity Church Modbury um, brought Scott Westwood on to plant somewhere in the north and plans for that are starting together. It looks like they'll plant halfway through next year, uh, God willing. So, you know, for your encouragement, continue to see the gospel go out to different parts of our city. Um, let me pray for us and we will get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for the encouragement and the challenge that is contained within it. Uh, But above all, we thank you for the reminder each day that uh, it speaks to us of what you are like, that you are good and that you are worthy of all praise. Amen. Uh, Well, these last three weeks, Psalms 126, 127, 128, uh, Songs of Ascent, as I've described to you, uh, what the Israelites sang as they made their way up to the temple to meet with the Lord. Um, We come to the last of this group uh, for this series, and I'm going to follow the same structure as I've done each week, to spend a few minutes reflecting on what the psalm tells us about what God is like, Uh, then to think about how it points us towards Jesus, the fullest revelation of our God, before finally we conclude with some reflections uh, for questions it might ask of us today. Uh, Let's jump straight in then, Psalm 128, again, a song of ascents, like the previous three actually, very short, uh, and again in two parts. Uh, the two parts I've headed there on the outline as blessing and benediction. A blessing and benediction. A blessing for verses 1 through 4, and then a benediction in verses 5 and 6. Now Let's start with the blessing then. Verses 1 through 4, I'm going to read it again for us. Verse 1. Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in obedience to him. You will eat the fruit of your labor. Blessings and prosperity will be yours. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Yes, this will be the blessing for the man who fears the Lord. It's a wonderful picture in Psalm 128 of how God delights to bless his people. If you recall last week in Psalm 127, uh, we saw the delight of lots of children uh, as a blessing of God's, a quiverful in fact. Psalm 128, I think, takes that image and extends it even further. It's a lovely picture of rural life, of the wonder of a bumper harvest, all enjoyed in the company of family and loved ones. So verse 2, you will eat the fruit of your labor, is the promise. There were many hindrances in the ancient world to agriculture. There was drought or flood. Uh, There was pestilence. Uh, If you've ever read the Old Testament, you'll be struck by the number of times it refers to, quite literally, the biblical locust plague. And, of course, there was always the threat of marauding raiders who might take that which was yours purely by force. In that context, then, how reassuring to know that, Psalm 128, you will reap what you sow. Your labour will not be in vain. And that metaphor, of course, in verse 2, is then used to describe the abundant company with whom you will enjoy it all. Verse 3, your wife will be like a fruitful vine, your children will be like olive shoots. Now, I think the key in this image here is within your house, verse 3, and around your table. Uh, The picture, actually, that comes to mind for me is of a Tuscan villa, Imagine the scene, uh, a beautiful villa, a noisy birthday celebration. There is food and drink flowing freely. There is raucous laughter filling the air. There are children running amok, full of joy and delight. Uh, All of us actually, uh, all of us have similar celebrations from our own culture, uh, whether or not you're Italian. Uh, I need to say that a little while ago I wasted an inordinate amount of time on Airbnb looking at pictures of such things. I printed one there for you on your handout if you're wondering what that was for. You look at it and you just you find yourself imagining how delightful that would be. Of course, the big question for us is who gets this kind of blessing? Who is entitled to this kind of magnificence? How do you find it? if that's what you want. Well, verse 4 explains, yes, this will be the blessing for the one who fears the Lord. The one who fears the Lord. Now, I want to acknowledge, of course, that when you see words like that, uh, fearing the Lord, the one who fears the Lord, uh, at one level, it can sound to us rather ominous. It sounds, in fact, absolutely nothing like the Tuscan Villa, does it? It sounds, in fact, like before you receive those good things, you need to cower in fear before a holy and transcendent deity. And sometimes, to be honest, that is the right response. Those moments when we're struck by the magnitude of our sin, actually, we ought to be somewhat nervous, even afraid of being held to account for our wrongdoing. But in Psalm 128, I think the meaning is actually much less confrontational. I say that because verse 4, of course, comes after verse 1. Verse 1, Blessed are all who fear in the Lord, who walk in obedience to him. All who fear the Lord, who walk in obedience to our God. Uh, Now, again, I'm not naive. I realise that moving from fearing the Lord to being obedient to him at one level, doesn't sound that much more appealing. Talk of obedience, of course, is something that we naturally rile against. It feels like religion that tries to control us. It sounds like a whole series of rules and regulations that we have to keep to please God that he might bless us in due course. That's a problem particularly for us who are Australian. Uh, We have a wickedly anti-authoritarian streak. uh, Probably stems from our convict past. I work with students. This is particularly the case for students uh, who are embracing freedom from parents and from teachers for the first time. Try talking to them about rules and regulations and you're only met with sterny silence. But if you look at Psalm 128 in entirety, uh, it won't take long, there's only six verses, right? If you look at it in entirety, I hope you can see that the emphasis in Psalm 128 is much less on us having to be compliant. Rather, the emphasis is on a generous God who longs to bless us. That's the theme that keeps coming through over and over again. A God who longs to bless his people. And it makes sense, really. Because if God made us and put us in a world which at least initially, was meant to be quite literally a garden paradise. If our God made us and loved us that much, if you live in obedience to that maker, if you live the way that our maker made us to be, it stands to reason you have nothing to be afraid of. You only have goodness to delight in. Remember what I've been trying to say throughout this series on the Psalms? First and foremost, they speak not of us, but of God's character. And I think that means that even if our present experience is far from the picture of Psalm 128, and for some of us it is, nevertheless, Psalm 128 is meant to tell us what our God is like. What our giving God is like at heart. In fact, when you remember that Psalm 128 was a song of ascents, I think the first and most basic meaning of walking in obedience to him actually literally means to walk towards him, to come to him, as he calls us to do. Every minute of our lives, but particularly in this gathering on Sunday. Well, the first part of the psalm describes God's blessing... The second part pronounces God's benediction. Benediction, as you know, it's just a bit of an old-fashioned word for best wishes. Let me read that benediction then, verses 4 and 5. May the Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you live to see your children's children. Peace be on Israel. Notice, if you will, here, the repeated vocabulary from earlier, the repetition of prosperity, of family, of children's children. Uh, Actually, in both halves of the psalm, I think the songwriter is saying, may God bless you with prosperity and progeny. May God bless you with good fortune and a great family. May God bless you with success and grandchildren, uh, even great-grandchildren. And of course, the thing is about Psalm 128, even though it's a song of the Jews, uh, whose existence hundreds of years before Christ feels impossibly far removed from us here today, nevertheless, this longing, this longing is universal. It is, as they say, transcultural. This desire is something that we all have deep down. One example of this desire for not just good fortune, but family to enjoy it with, uh, came to me uh, early on in marriage. Uh, My wife and I had been married only for a couple of months, and uh, I think as I shared with you, my wife is Caucasian. We went round to visit my grandparents. Uh, My grandfather is your kind of typical uh, Chinese grandfather, I suppose. Uh, We knocked on the front door, and we'd not even made it across the threshold before my grandfather stopped my new bride and says to her, I want two great-grandsons quickly. Not to put any pressure on her at that point. Uh, She, of course, said, why two? And he said to her, well, in case something happens to the first one. (laughs) It's a universal desire, isn't it? Not just to experience good things, but to have people to experience them with. Notice, however, that part two does introduce two additional elements to God's blessing. Now, firstly, you'll notice there in verse 5, it says that may the Lord bless you from Zion. Specifically for the Old Testament Jews, God's blessing was to come from Zion. Zion is just another word for Jerusalem. I think what it's saying to us today in 21st century Adelaide is it's reminding us of the principle that whatever we receive from God, it's on God's terms, not ours. God's blessing is his generosity to grant, not an entitlement that we might demand. And secondly, you'll notice there the way in which the psalm concludes. Verse six, May you live to see your children's children. Peace be on Israel. Peace be on Israel. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Most of us read this psalm in terms of what it means for me, for my family, and yet the psalm finishes reminding us, by reminding us, that the blessing of God is not merely individual, it is corporate. In fact, in the Old Testament, it was national. Remember how I said this is a song of a sense. This is the song for God's people to sing as they made their way to meet with their God. So you recall that along the way, over the last few weeks, I've been saying that the Songs of a sense are kind of like the things that you might have on your playlist as you drive to church on a Sunday morning. Actually, can you see how that illustration is far too individualistic? It's not big enough in describing what's going on. See, most of us came to church this morning on our own. We rode, we drove, we walked, but we did it on our own, maybe within our family unit. But in fact, a better way to think of Psalm 128 is none of us making our own way to church. Rather, it's to imagine that this morning a church bus set out from here and drove around all the suburbs and picked every one of us up one at a time that we might come to church together. Imagine the picture, if you will. The bus pulls up outside your house and you get on board... And you discover that actually everybody is already singing the song. And so you take your seat, you join in and raucously, as one, we come together to meet with our God as his people. Now, why have I drawn that connection? Well, it's not necessarily to imply that you should get a bus before next week. But rather because sometimes when you come to church, you don't feel like singing. The words of Psalm 128 could not be further from where you feel. But that's okay. Because sometimes others on the bus will sing it for you. On your behalf. Whilst you're in a season of despair. And sometimes the blessings of Psalm 128 are not forthcoming. So, what do we do then? Well, point two how Psalm 128 points us to Jesus. Now, the usual way in which we read a psalm like Psalm 128 uh, is to focus on the spiritual blessings that Jesus brings us. Those spiritual blessings which far outweigh the good things of this world that Psalm 128 seems to be describing. And perhaps the best example of that comes in Ephesians chapter 1. Have a look there at verse 3, a verse well known to us. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now that's just the headline, if you go on and read through the rest of chapter 1, you see the extraordinary ways in which God has blessed us. The forgiveness of sins, redemption through Christ's blood, adoption as children, the hope of future glory. That's a critical thing for us to do as Christians. To recognise that God's material blessings in Psalm 128, that were anchored in Zion and in Israel... They are now, thankfully, extended to all believers everywhere, to everyone, anyone who is in Christ. People like you and me. But today I want to do something a little bit different. I want to pick up on that corporate dimension that we saw in Psalm 128 and springboard in a slightly different direction. I'd like us to look at Mark chapter 10, Because I think this is a key passage which describes what Jesus offers to all people collectively. Both in this world and in the one to come. Have a look at Jesus' words here in Mark chapter 10, verse 29. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers, or sisters or mother, or father or children, or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. March after 10 is a very famous passage amongst Christians. Although my observation is that, for Christians, we focus mostly in those verses on the end of the promise, where Jesus says that in the age to come, there will be eternal life. That, of course, is Christ's greatest promise, that all who follow him will follow him to the place where he has gone ahead of us to prepare a room for us in his Father's house. And yet my observation is that we Christians, we tend to ignore everything in between, as if being a Christian is just about what happens when you die. You go to be with Jesus. Jesus. And there's not much in the meantime. In fact, in the meantime, you've just got to grit your teeth and bear it. Uh, when I was at Bible college, um, one of our lecturers was fond of reminding us that for many Christians, sadly, the hope of being a Christian is no more than pie in the sky when you die. Pie in the sky when you die. Now, let me just... Say for a moment, I understand why it is that for Christians, uh, particularly in our circles, uh, I understand why we do that. Uh, We make that emphasis because we're at pains to avoid the opposite wrong extreme. Uh, That's the view that some Christians hold to, that actually you ought to expect every material blessing in this world. A kind of prosperity gospel that if you believe in Jesus, you'll get everything you want in this life. As I said, that's a wrong extreme. It's entirely problematic when you consider the fact that, well, at least globally, most believers in the global south have nothing. And yet, it's also a wrong extreme because it takes us too far away from the hope that Jesus offers for the present. See, one of the blessings is in the here and now. Verse 29, Truly I tell you, Jesus said, no one who's left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel, verse 30, will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Jesus seems to be saying that anyone who leaves behind unbelieving family to follow Christ will gain a hundred times as much in this present age. It's a family that we belong to. It just happens to be spiritual family, not biological. Jesus very clearly has something to offer in this present life. It's not just pie in the sky when you die. Uh, To come back to my Bible college lecturer, he used to say and... Well, what can I say? He was a dad, so this is what you call a dad joke. He'd say there was steak on your plate while you wait. Now, lest you think that it's all plain sailing today, did you notice what Jesus added there in verse 30? Along with persecutions. But the one blessing I think that Jesus promises every Christian is the delight of community, of belonging, of being not just a paid-up member in a club, but being adopted into a family, of being kin, of being flesh and blood with other believers. And I think what Jesus is saying in Mark chapter 10 is that this is a blessing that is available no matter how financially prosperous you might be? It seems to me that this is what makes life bearable. Whether you're someone who's filthy rich or whether you're someone who's dirt poor, what makes it bearable is having people to share that life with. Well, what Psalm 128 says about God how points us towards Jesus, let me finish then with what Psalm 128 asks of us today. There's a question that I've printed there for you at the bottom of your handout. The question I want to finish with is simply this. How will others want what we've got? How will others want what we have for ourselves? Uh, One of the interesting things about Psalm 128, if you just look at it once again, Psalm 128, um, one of the interesting things is that it's almost entirely positive. Like there's almost no downside to it anywhere, is there? What it's doing, I think, is painting a picture for us of a God who is so good to us in every way. And that leads me to wonder, as I reflect on Psalm 128, why it is that Christians so often seem downcast or discontent. Why Christians are so often glass-half-empty pessimists with long, scowling faces. Why is it? That we dwell so often on the things we do not have, rather than focus on God's extraordinary blessings to us in Christ. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not implying that Christians should pretend as if hardship doesn't affect us, as if it's not real, or as if it doesn't bother us. After all, remember Mark chapter 10? Jesus did warn of persecutions. So I'm not saying that as Christians who have been blessed by God, we ought to float around as if we're in a little bubble of happiness. We must speak of failure, of brokenness, of sin and of wrongdoing of our own, first and foremost. And we must do so if for no other reason... Then our friends and our neighbours, who on the whole live incredibly privileged lives, will never have any reason to think they need Jesus if they do not see that there is a problem. But I am saying that as Christians, I think we ought to be people whose lives look different from those around us. The reason for that is because we do have blessings both in this present age and in the world to come. And I think the way in which we live our lives ought to reflect that so much so that those around us ought want that for themselves. They ought want the kind of hope that Christ alone can bring. Of course, the question is, how will they want it if they don't even know that we have it? Surely the difference in our lives compared to those around us ought to be apparent in the way that we live, and particularly in times of hardship. As I've talked about over these weeks, I work with students. I often say to our students that in many ways the best time for evangelism is in SWATVAC. Because SWATVAC, one assumes, is one of those times where their classmates recognise just how desperate their need is. Christians, I think, ought appear less stressed than those around us because in the end, we're not relying on ourselves to secure a blessed life. We know that it's a gift from God. And yet by comparison, all that our classmates have is their own labor and their own efforts. Well, the really interesting thing about our students this year is that they chose to make their mission week. Uh, You'll see a picture of the graphic there. I'm sure you spotted it when it was on at the time. Lots of them wearing the jumpers around. The theme that they chose this year was, I find hope in. And they did it because they wanted it to be a starting point of a conversation to perhaps create an opportunity to share something of the hope that they have that, as we know all too well, Those around us do not. Well, here's my final suggestion then for this talk and for this series. Uh, What I want to do is pick up on the particular blessing of community that Psalm 128 describes. uh, That blessing that is so completely fulfilled in Mark chapter 10. And I'd like to urge you over this coming month, Uh, to invite those around you, those in your life who don't know Jesus, to have a sample of the wondrous blessing of life in the Christian community. Christmas, of course, is approaching. With that, there'll be a whole series of, I guess I could say, formal events that you could invite people to. Invite them to a great carol service or to a Christmas Day service that they might come and see others and be connected with others in a way that so many in this society crave. But don't limit your imagination to thinking just about formal events that introduce people to Christian community. Perhaps it might be something less formal, something more casual. If you're a long-term South Australian and all your biological family is here, Perhaps you might think about breaking what is the sacrosanct tradition of only spending Christmas with your family and inviting those around you, particularly those who don't have biological family of their own. I think as Christians, we tend to forget just what a difference it is when we invite people into our homes. Those around us don't do that. If you meet with people, you meet them in a park or in a restaurant so that when the time is up, you may leave and you may leave them behind. It's true. That's why most people around us meet in public spaces because your home is your castle. Every time we invite someone in, it says something to them about how willing we are to have them in our lives because we think that we have something worth sharing. I think we tend to lose sight of that the longer you're in Christian community because Christian community is so different. Our neighbours next door to us uh, who we've been next to now for the last five or six years, now, we've invited them over at different times and tried to get them involved. We're fortunate to have a pool they don't so their kids are often around. The thing I think that made the biggest difference for them was when uh, the mother went into hospital for minor surgery a couple of years ago Uh, And when Wendy found out, Wendy did what everyone does in a Christian community, she made them a lasagna. (laughs) They were astounded by the fact that we would make food for them. Because, well, you just do that for family, don't you? You don't do that for anyone else. And yet the whole image of Psalm 128 is being part of a community that is built around Jesus. So we're all brothers and sisters. Seems to me that if those around us see what we have now and how thankful we are for that, it'll give us a chance to speak of the even greater hope that we have because we have every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly realms. And all that given us now, it's just a glimpse, it's a foretaste of what we will have in eternity when we gather actually uh, not just as this family here but with people from every nation every language every tribe and every tongue to sing his praise so i'm going to finish and i'm going to finish by reading for us these words from revelation chapter seven after this and i looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language, all standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, so they fell down on their faces before the throne and they worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory, wisdom and thanks, and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So one of the elders asked me, those in white robes, who are they? Where did they come from? I answered, well, so you know. So he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes, they've made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen.